Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. It is my great pleasure to welcome to the Bully Pulpit Podcast, Anita Diamond, who was the founding president of Maim Chaim, Living Waters Community Mikvah, and is the award-winning author of The Red Tent, The Boston Girl, three other novels, and six guidebooks on contemporary Jewish life. May I call you Anita? Yeah, I hope so. Anita, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start off my questions about your book, Saying Kaddish, uh, because I was particularly attracted to the way you opened it. You refer to the Kaddish as beyond words, mm-hmm. and you also go on to explain a little bit about the problems that exist in the words. And if you were to get in the weeds on what the Kaddish actually says, you describe it, I think you use the word opaque or, or difficult woman mm-hmm. to have to wrestle with it. But I wonder if those two things aren't related to one another, if the opacity and the difficulty, the kind of impenetrability of the actual meaning of the Kaddish text isn't, in fact, related to the fact that experientially it's completely beyond words. Most Jews don't know what it means. And even if they read, it's so impenetrable that if you read like a, a mid-century translation of the Kaddish, it makes no sense. I mean, you, you really don't walk away with much to work with. If those two things are correlated, if, if, if the opacity and the density of the text or the impenetrability of the text is one of the reasons it's beyond words and that has become such a thing where it's, it's an, kind of an incantation more than an actual text. I wouldn't go there myself. Isn't Kaddish a, a sort of a doxology? It is a doxology. It is a doxology. So, a doxology well, with, which most Jews probably don't believe in. No, exactly. But I don't think that's why Kaddish is so powerful. I, and I think I wrote that. It's kind of a... It is an incantation. It is a lullaby. It is uh, people identified from childhood even. if Even if you went to services 10 times in your life, you heard Kaddish and people stood up and it was in, in memory of somebody. So I think there's an association with it. And I think if there's shuckling, if there's, if there's motion in the body anywhere, it's around Kaddish and there's a kind of, it's almost a dance too. And so I think it's a very physical and oral rather than intellectual experience. The transliteration is that is, gives you access to, to participating in it. And the language is very secondary because what it does is it summons up the people that you are remembering or mourning for or, or you're standing in solidarity with somebody who's mourning. So I think the language is really secondary. So I think, I think that's a kind of a rabbinic question. I don't think it's a question from the pews somehow. I intend it as an anti-rabbinic question, <laughs> just to say it is precisely because it is somewhere between impenetrable and nonsensical. Mm-hmm. For most Jews in any meaningful way, that it is therefore relegated to being an incantation. Mm-hmm. We can't do anything with the text right. except make it abracadabra. It is abracadabra, and it works that way, doesn't it? Yeah, it yeah I, no, no, it absolutely does. Mm-hmm. I think I think I remember trying to make sense of, the, of it in English, mm-hmm. and it meaning absolutely nothing to me, except the the choreography of it, mm-hmm. as you say, and the, the reliability of the emotional. And it sound, it, it's got a, because it's repetitive, it's got the, right. the power of song. It's sort of it's the spoken word of the Jewish people. It's interesting you said if you've only gone to shul ten times, it's it's the one prayer you will have statistically heard the most because it's repeated so much throughout. For non-mourning purposes, right. it's repeated so many times throughout the service anyway. It is the best known, and people who don't even know what it means to say Kaddish say, 
if they've lost somebody and are disconnected from their Jewishness that would know nothing, they'll say, I want to do something, I want to say Kaddish without knowing. All they know is that it means connecting to the memory in, um, in a kind of a visceral way with other people, perhaps. The books that I write, like saying Kaddish in particular, is for people who are in tremendous need of something at that particular moment. Nobody buys that book unless they've had a loss or unless a friend of theirs has had a loss and they're bringing it to a house for Shiva. That's the only reason people pick that book up. And so it's written, it's really a... A manual. A manual, yeah. It's a manual to walk you through. So the intellectual parts of it and the rabbinic parts of it play a real second fiddle in this book more than even the other guys. Yeah, no, I agree. And I enjoyed your putting your finger exactly on that emotive Mm -hmm. quality and its utility, Mm -hmm. frankly. I'm making the intellectual argument on top of it. Yeah, well, it's helpful. It's helpful to step away from it. So people don't believe it. If you if they actually right, read it, right. they go, "Well, I don't believe that." Yeah, most Jews aren't actively messianic, <laughs> and it's and it's right. a, and it's a messianic uh, yeah. prayer. Right. And it's about the rising of the dead. I mean, that's yeah. a. Yeah. I have a beef actually. I have a thing. We you know you know it's a kind of commonplace that many rabbis say in an almost offhand way, as if to reflect on the counterintuitive wisdom of the Jewish tradition, mm-hmm. that the prayer in memory of the dead, speaks of life. Right. When in fact, of course, the life that they're referring to is the life after death. <laughs> well, in that part of the prayer where it talks about the raising of the dead, people tend to put it in parentheses or, or take it out because right. um, it's weird. It is weird. <laughs> we don't believe in that. It's but, weird, but it's, but the it's in there. And, it's and, in there. And it's our go-to, as yeah. you say. It's, it's, it's the one reliable go-to in, in the liturgy for all Jews. I would just want to say one thing. Yes, about, please, I don't know if we're talking, no, no, jump we're talking jump more jump about the book. I think that's my best book. I think it's the best thing I've written. I wrote it the year after my father died, Mm -hmm. after I had walked through the steps of Kaddish, which I really had no experience of. I would never have written it without that experience, but I felt like I was in, I still was doing it for a second year. It was, it was like two years of Kaddish. It was by you, for you, at least partially. Yeah, and I also knew that I would have liked a book like that. Right. Because I didn't know most of this, or or I knew, I knew the shape of it, but I didn't know other parts I didn't and I was didn't have the language that other people could give me to so is your affection for the book also because it helped you through it um I, I, I didn't enjoy I don't enjoy writing any book but um I was doing a second year of cottage so it wasn't I wasn't it didn't help me through particularly I felt like I had to relive it but I I felt good because I knew it was useful and that I knew it would be helpful to people and and I was also doing research for it once again overwhelmed with the wisdom of the tradition, especially around grieving and death and taking care of people who are dying. Mm-hmm. And after it came out, I was lucky enough to be on panels with people from different religious traditions. There was also an NPR big long series on end of life traditions and, and funeral traditions. And Judaism wins. <laughs> it is like <laughs> priests, ministers envy the structure of mourning, Jewish mourning traditions. That you have a week, you have a month. I don't know so much about it. I don't know. I don't yeah. think. I really don't know because I was talking to Christians. Christians, yeah, Christians. But uh, Christian tradition doesn't. They envy the structure. Yeah, you have a week, you have a month, you have a year. Right. There's a logic to there's it. There's a logic it. to it, and it makes sense. And you don't go to work for the first week if you right. can avoid it, or as little as you can. And I, you know, I have a friend I remember whose father died very young, and she went back to work two days later, and she didn't know why she was so spaced out. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I'd like to shift, if I may, but please. No, I like I like the offhand. Uh, <laughs> I was struck by a theme that emerged in an NPR interview you had about the Boston girl, mm-hmm. 
and the theme that came up was about otherness. Mm-hmm. You reflected on otherness in in relation to the protagonist, Addie, but not as a Jew in America or as a minority, but in that particular interview, you reflected on Addie's otherness in relation to her own family. And as an immigrant, yeah, yeah. yes. As, an, as a child of an immigrant in an immigrant family, yes. Right, yeah, yeah. And she was different from... Exactly. The, in the way that first-generation right. children right, often right. are. Yeah. Which was counterintuitive to me, not because in and of itself that's so surprising, mm-hmm. but, but the othernesses that I tend to pick up on as a Jew in America tend to be the, the sociological ones, not mm-hmm. the familiological ones, the ones that are about uh, you know, being a small minority, racial, ethnic, Judaic, religious, whatever. If I could probe you mm-hmm. as a person and your own sense of otherness as a Jew or as a woman, what what motivates you in that regard? Is, is, is otherness something that you were able to draw on for Addie, or is this a, just a fictional um, exercise? Well, I'm drawn to, in fiction particularly, delving into undertold or untold stories. Maybe that's another way of talking about otherness, particularly women's stories, which were not told before, 1923, yeah. um, Virginia Woolf's wonderful Room of One's Own saying there's nothing written uh, from the point of view of women until quite recently. So, And I think there's lots of room on the bookshelf still and in filmography yeah. and video. Yeah. Uh, lots of stories that haven't been told. So that's where I'm drawn. And they are people who are voiceless often and are not included in history books. I've heard or read you comment on the voicelessness with respect to the Red Tent. Mm-hmm and sort of uh, affording a voice mm-hmm. uh, from, from the Midrashic right. imagination, effectively. But that's true in every th- all of my fiction. The second novel is Good Harbor, which is the only contemporary book I wrote, but it's about a, it, it celebrates women's friendships in a way that I think is underrepresented. Mm. I think women, women's friendships, the conversations women have with one another, have been off the map, off the charts for, for centuries. So that was put forward. So giving a voice to the importance of the redemptive power of women's friendships. And then Last Days of Dogtown is poor people, rural poor people in Massachusetts in the mid-1800s who have been totally voiceless and living at the same time as Mozart or Beethoven. The world is having all kinds of moments everywhere. And these people are struggling to live, and yet their lives have meaning. So telling the story of a freed African man, a freed African woman of of women who, who live alone so that they don't have to put up with whatever they had to put up with in society, including prostitutes and orphans. So, so those people were other in a way, too. In uh, Day After Night, which is a post-Holocaust book set in Palestine, 1945, telling women's sto- experiences of the Holocaust, I still think is, uh, I think there's, there's fewer stories, there's fewer novels, there's, there's, we know less about their experience during the war and also after the war. So that's why. Is this a curiosity or is this a, f- a feminist uh, or a Judaist urge, a corrective you feel you have to, or does it just happen to be the, the vector of your curiosity? That's a nice way to put it. It's the vector of my curiosity fed by, I think, by being first generation, being Jewish in America, being feminist politically to the left, all of that. It also expresses the fact that I was born now, this period in history, and that English is my language. What is English being your language? English is just a great language. Oh, you like English? (laughs) I like English. I I think it's got the biggest vocabulary of any language. I've heard that. I've heard Um, that. It's it's a great big melting pot of of words and language, American English in particular. So, um, and, you know, being an American too, which... I used to be prouder of, but <laughs> but the, the dream of America is still salient. My parents came to this country and thought 
and thought the world of it. Yeah. Even even though they screamed and ranted and railed at politics, they had seen the other side. So. You think that's a, something we can generalize about American Jews in general? It's certainly been my experience. My parents, I'm, I'm, I'm of the more, the bigger bulk of American Jew, Jewry, which came in the late 19th and early 20th mm-hmm. century. So I'm already fourth generation, mm-hmm. third generation born. But I was raised on that same pride, that mm-hmm. same commitment to the vision, the, the Enlightenment mm-hmm. ideal, and yeah. believing that it was within our grasp or at least a beacon that we could yeah. meaningfully aim towards even if we didn't necessarily reach it. A lot of people feel this I way. I think a lot of people feel that way. I, I hate generalizing. I think, I hope it's part of, I certainly hope it's part of, of Jewish consciousness. I re- fed I hope by so. our own otherness. Yes, fed by our otherness and also by our beliefs in, in that, that the world is basically good and it's up to us to improve it and right. all that rabbinic and prophetic tradition. So I think that's kind of baked in. There was a great op-ed in the New York Times two days ago by an African-American woman talking about her patriotism. Mm. And it was very much along these lines. It was about being upset, certainly, about what's going on, but feeling enormous pride in her, in, in African-American athletes taking a knee. Um, and if people... Right. Uh, working to to vote, and and now she's taking her voting much more seriously, and she still believes in the vision of this country, and I th- it was the, it was next to Charles Blow despairing, and it was just a beautiful, very Jewish to me right. statement of hope, and that we have these goals, and that we have these ideals that are American, and I'm patriotic for those. So I find that American Jewish Zionism mm-hmm. is often expressed in the same way of that quasi or not even quasi, but full blown redemptive hope and the, the attribution of Israel's capacity yeah. maybe to approach that uh, if it's at its best yeah. and tested, I, of course. I at, find it harder, actually. At, but as yes. we do in America yeah. today, as you yeah. yourself said. Yes. So there's no question that it undergoes you know, daunting tests all the time. Mm-hmm. But somehow we invest both of these countries with similar hopes yeah. in, in that way. I think so, know? yeah. I think so. uh, for understandable reasons. Yeah. So I don't know. So the so otherness, as I said, it's not the language I used, but voicelessness is really kind of the same thing. I don't actually feel like an outsider in a lot of ways. I feel really lucky. I got a college education. When I started working in a newsroom, nobody bothered me. And a while, it was hard to get a column in, an, in a major newspaper because they already had Ellen Goodman. I still got published everywhere, and I have had a great career. And... I wrote lots of stuff about Judaism in the Boston Phoenix, in the Boston Globe, in, in New England Monthly, in Parenting Magazine. So I've been able to express all of me in, in uh, settings that are both Jewish and, and general, not Jewish particularly. Right. So I feel really, again, I sort of squeaked in <laughs> at, at a great moment in history. And I, I'm very aware of my privilege that way. Before we return to the Bully Pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes, and whatever you do, Do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. Among the things you write, you also write a blog. Oh, thank you for reading it. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. In the midst of sexual harassment headlines, a recent one of yours picked up on two very stark observations that I want to engage you with, if I may. So the first one, 
I really felt was an overdue comment, and I want to thank you for it because I thought it was spot on. You wrote, good people are shocked, shocked, to discover that women face a potential minefield every time we walk down the street. I, I like this because you're reminding us of two things. One is we shouldn't be surprised. Mm -hmm. This has been going on in the public sphere for a long time. There's really no shock here. But not only should we not be surprised, we shouldn't act surprised. <laughs> it's, and, that's, and that's really important. So, so I don't actually have a question there. I just want to agree with you. But, but there's a second observation which I found more challenging to me. On the heels of this comment, you picked up on a type of confusion that many people protest to mm -hmm. suffer, to undergo, in the phrase, how am I supposed to know the difference between flirting and harassment? You describe this particular response as moronic mewling. Now, I really... Ooh, that's tough, isn't it? Boy. I, I like the <laughs> turn of phrase, and I like you appreciate it, a good turn of phrase. So I appreciate that, but, but I do find... I guess I find it uncharitable. I, oh, gee. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I don't mean I don't mean like in a touchy-feely way. I mean in an analytical way. It it seems to me like there there is a place in this conversation for a component where there are blurry lines, mm -hmm. not the bright lines, mm -hmm. not the president of the United States having groped mm -hmm. another person, but other lines that are blurrier. And I think that, um, am, am I, is, is that unreasonable to, to, to recognize the legitimately blurry parts and challenge yourself to? As you said, you like the turn of the shocked, shocked to pretend that we didn't know that. It's sort of part of the same language here. It's like, to me, it's whiny. I'm sorry. What's been coming out? I think there need to be interesting conversations, real, genuine conversations about, well, I'm not supposed, how am I supposed to know how to behave? You know how to behave. I'm sorry. And if you, if you, you, know, if you, you know how to behave. No, there, there no are, I mean, no. You, no. You, you deny the presence of a blurry line. Of anywhere, no, no, anywhere. there is a blurry line. Okay, so there's, but a, it's place, really, there's a place. Yeah, but the blurry line is so far away from the conversation we're having right now. No, I disagree. I mean, oh. well, okay, let's, let's, I heard of an actress, an empowered woman, mm -hmm. an actress, uh, referring to her, her experience on the set, mm -hmm. and invoking the media context of harassment and... Yeah. and even assault, although she didn't use assault mm -hmm. in this. And she referred to the fact that men, commonly in her description, mm -hmm. in guiding her from one place to the, on the set to another place, may put their hand on the small of her back. Okay, so what you have to do is think about it from the other side, especially thinking of if, if something has happened to you in your life, that somebody touched you really inappropriately, somebody putting their hand on you, especially when you're hyper aware right now about this, especially if you're an actress and, and your body is a big part of, yeah. of what you do, it's not pleasant, it's, un, it's uncomfortable. So, and I, you know, I, think, I think this has been unspoken for a long time. It has, All, the depth of this, and actually I was listening to, who's the woman who went public with, um, she was on NPR the other night talking about Trump's, and people that now, she's been, her face is known, her name is known, people come up to her. And she, she was getting tired of being asked. So what she would do is ask the women who were asking her, well, what, what's your story? And they all had a story. They all had a story. And when you think back, when you've had a story like that and someone gives you permission to remember it, then all the little micro things that, that, you, that you shut off, that you, didn't, that you didn't acknowledge as painful or, diff or weird, just weird, bubble up. 
and, and people are hyper aware right now. And I think this is not the moment about, the, perhaps this is not the moment to have the fuzzy conversation. Okay, well, here's why, here's why I want to disagree with you. Everything you said in the affirmative is non-controversial. I get that. I get why. Well, for me, it's not. I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying yes. Yes to everything you said. But that's not what I'm talking about. From the point of view of the, the perpetrator in this case, is it so mewling and moronic for the man, in, in, in this case, I'm assuming it was a man who, who put his hand on the small of her back or whatever the action was. In question. It, is it, is it, is it, isn't it not, in fact, productive uh, for, a man, for a man to say, whoa, mm -hmm. like, okay. <clears throat> that's not what I've heard in the media, I'm sorry. Maybe that's what I'm reacting to more. And this was early on, okay? So this was early on with like, and I, and I did hear people and I saw letters to the editor saying, how am I, I don't know what to do, I don't know how to behave. I actually think you do know how to behave. I think there still need to be conversations about touching and what's appropriate and not appropriate to say. But especially in the beginning. I'm, I'm not going to defend mewling, okay? I'm no, not going to defend mewling. And I don't mean to nitpick on the word. I'm trying to get at the spirit behind <clears throat> no, it. I, I, no, I think yes, but not. But I, I actually don't. Everyone says, oh, we know, we know, we understand. I, I actually don't think most men understand. I really don't. I really don't. I mean, that notion of a minefield, of what it feels like to walk with your keys out, to think when you get out of the, no, it's like, it's like being, I mean, I'm, I, can't make, I can't make a racial, <laughs> I won't let you make a racial um, observation, but you can't tell black people what it's like to be a black person in America, and you can't tell women what it's like to be a woman in America, but, which is, I know, I'm not getting to exactly what you're saying, but. But you're not even getting at all to what I'm saying. I know. The whole point is, what, what I'm saying is, yes, I accede mm -hmm. to the definitions defined mm -hmm. by the people who need to define it. Fair enough. I'm not, I'm not even going there. Yeah. That's not even what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that this isn't... What did I write? I'm sorry. You said read the whole... Called, I wait, don't, don't read the whole sentence. You have the whole I, sentence? No. Oh. Hold on. <laughs> I, we, no, no. We just, can edit it out. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, it's worth it. So, <laughs> so wait a minute. I'm no, trying, we're, I'm we're talking at cross purposes. Because no, I don't really disagree with you, to oh, be perfectly great. honest. Oh, great. But I'm trying, to, I'm trying to also get at the fact that because I don't disagree with you. Yeah, I know. We're not really disagreeing. It's just, yeah, it was, a, it was a strong turn of phrase. But I am. No, no, again, I'm not picking I on the, the I'm not picking Did you on get the, it after moronic mewling? Okay, I will read it for the record. You ready? <laughs> All right. Um, the Daily Dispatches about sexual harassment and abuse have unleashed a parade of celebrity perp walks, howls of denial, shame faced confessions, moronic mewlings, open parentheses, quote, how am I supposed to know the okay, line? Okay, all right. And There's the context. It's in the context of the perp walk. Oh, you mean that, at, like, like, yeah, well, like Weinstein? Is, that's the next sentence. That follows the sentence of, it's uh, howls of denial. Uh, Wait a minute, read it. So it's howls of denial. It's three. It's a yes, three. howls of denial, no. shame-faced confession. And mewling. Okay. Fine. okay. All right. I win. <laughs> no, it was in context. But okay. I agree that, there, that there's a conversation. There are many conversations. Yeah. I wrote a piece many years ago about when friends of mine who are teaching in colleges were feeling, and, and on in campuses this happened a long time ago. There was this yeah, entitled I, one right letter to um, about about how you're supposed to behave when there's an accusation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and I have friends who were, I have a, a, an acquaintance who was accused of um, not sexual misconduct but um, disrespect and not giving somebody tenure be, just because she was a woman. Anyway, I had a teacher in college, and my English teacher Harry Martin who was really important to me, made me, took me from being a B student to being an A student and by sending me to a tutor. And I sat in his office for hours 
I mean, and I, as I wrote in there, to watch him tie his shoes, which is a, a reference to the Baal Shem Tov, I think, right? The guy who goes to study with his rabbi, and they, uh, what did you go to learn? You know this story? No. Oh, well, it's, he, the, the student comes back, and they say, what did you learn? And say, I, I watched him tie his shoes, because everything he did was holy. Right, right, so, no, so. No, Harry Martin was a super mensch, really smart guy, sort of an older brother. He, mm -hmm. he was probably, I don't know, eight years older than me. I didn't, at the time, he seemed old. He was married. He was all grown up. I was an undergraduate. And I spent hours in his office. And I wrote this thing saying, I wonder, I feel bad for students who don't get that kind of intimacy now with right. teachers and professors right, because right. there's no way that would happen. The door would have to, I mean, the door was closed. He was in there. I'm sure the door was closed sometimes. Right, right, right. You couldn't do that. And I'm not sure spending enough about that much time, to me it was a lot of time, maybe it wasn't. I don't think it's accessible, especially for women who have mentors and teachers who are really important to them who are male. And I mourn that. Yeah, I get that. So uh, um, he, when he read it, he said, I wanted to have a t-shirt made. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm cognizant that we're losing something here for now. So perhaps in some right. distant future when the power relationships are different, people can close and, the door and have a private relationship without it being... And I'm cognizant of the fact that the, the pendulum may have to swing a bit before yeah. it finds equilibrium, and I think that's... Yeah. I, I get but the that. muling goes with the howls, Fair, all right? All right. So howls, muling, First of all, and... kudos on the word choice. Okay. <laughs> Se second of all... Boy, is this I, getting edited out. I get this... Uh, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I get okay. the context. All right, it's right. context. And, and I guess what I'm, what I'm yearning for in this mm -hmm. conversation, I think that there's a critical mass of men mm -hmm. who see themselves as decent people and actually approximate decency one way or the yeah. other. And the blurry line is where the work and the progress can be made. Mm -hmm. And so we shouldn't, it behooves us all to recognize the legitimacy of the blurry line, where it's blurry, without, without using that as an excuse to call what is not blurry, blurry. So I think where the work is to be done is, is far from the blurry line. It's actually um, the danger that women are in every day. I'm in real danger. So that that's where the that's really where the focus but, is now. Yeah, but with, I a, cer yes, with, a, yes, certain, yes, with yes. a certain interlocutor, you're not going to get any friction there. You're going to get allies right. who say, "Yeah, send them to jail." Yeah. You know, like all thumbs up. Yeah. No, but we live in a culture where that's sort of normal. Well, um, we have we have we have we have, we have we have elected officials. I mean, there's a lot. Yeah, to, there's, there's, <laughs> it's a lot. It's a it's lot. A lot. Yeah, power, and by powers, the way, exactly, and, and it's probably been going back, and we just didn't know about it for forever. And uh, we knew and about by it. the way, we knew about it, but it was yeah, it was not given know. voice. By the way, we knew about it with Clinton. We <laughs> knew about it with lots of people. Yeah, with lots of people. I mean, um, apparently Levine, James Levine, who today uh -huh. it was today, but they there were stories about him. Okay. Here. There were lots of stories about all of these people. That's right. It was all under. It the, was all people knew. Well, people, that's. People. I really, really appreciated your comment about the shot, shot, mm -hmm. the, and, and, and and then and then the and value. Women, and women participated in that. Uh, I have course, to say you know, because all, uh, nobody, nobody listened when they even uh, when it was called out. And on the progressive side, mm -hmm. I remember the Clinton presidency yeah. where we all, those of us on the left side of the spectrum, we completely gave him a yeah. pass. You know, much uh, to our shame. So, uh, there's enough to go around. There's enough to go Ooh, around. There's enough, there's to, enough go around. to go around. That's right. <laughs> So um, I didn't think we'd be talking about this. Well, anything that's we get, juicy. We, get, <laughs> we don't want to talk about Shakespeare. <laughs> well, let's close on the Shakespeare. Okay. Give me oh no, no. I've been um, writing blog posts about Shakespeare. My Shakespeare crush. I was in need of uh, creative nurturance. So I've always felt like I really didn't understand. I loved loved going to the theater. I'm a big theater nerd, but Shakespeare always felt. 
uh, for, at least for the first act, <laughs> or the first three scenes, impenetrable. So I wanted to understand more. Was that because of the language? Not, yeah, the language mostly because it's you have to. It's yeah. hard. Yeah, it is really hard. So I took a class called Shakespeare Workout, and so we, which is kind of an acting class for people who don't necessarily act. And I learned a lot. And basically, I learned that you have to you have to rehearse if you want to understand it. Mm-hmm. You have to be inside it. You have to say it. You have to work. Right, you it. Have you to have to try to inhabit the, the yeah, the, the... inhabit it and do it over and over again and say it out loud with other people. You can't do it alone. So it's been a beginner's mind approach to something that is intimidating to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So I've written several. And then even in this piece, there's a there's a quotation from Shakespeare from uh, Measure for Measure. Angela, who's the judge, who's just a real terrible human being, is sentencing somebody to death for no good reason. And his sister, who's about to become a nun, comes to plead for his life. And all of a sudden, he's overcome with lust for her. And he propositions her. He says, if you you sleep with me, I I won't put your brother to death. Mm. And she she threatens to go public with it. And he answers her this way. He says, who will believe thee, Isabel, my unsoiled name, the austereness of my life, my vouch against you and my place in the state will so your accusation outweigh that you shall stifle in your own report and smell of oh, calumny. My God. Yeah. That's yeah, there so you topical. Go. Yeah, yeah, it's 400 years old. For you. Yeah, 400 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you go. That's good. Yeah. That's good. And that, yes, <laughs> that's the, the, the weight of um, the weight of telling the truth. Yeah. yeah, no one's going to believe you. I've so, got power. So, so, so now I want to know: Can you package in a in a brief statement the the essence of your passion for Shakespeare? What is it about him that captures your imagination? Well, you know, it's four hundred year old stuff that is still incredibly alive and present and in the news. <laughs> you know, the Julius Caesar on the on the Common in New York was played as Trump, like, and people came up on the stage and were screaming and howling at how terrible this was. Of course, when they did that, and Obama was, uh, was Julius Caesar a few years ago, nobody protested. But it still, it still says, tells the truth, and it's difficult, and it's still, uh, people still will go and see it, and young people will go and see it as well. I'm, I have the pleasure of being part of the smaller theater company these days just as an observer and young people who are passionate about Shakespeare studying it and young people who are coming to, to watch it. You know, I think the kids are all right. <laughs> uh, it's just alive after 400 years and not static. And maybe this is where my Jewishness comes in because you have to wrestle with Shakespeare. You can't just sit there and passively take it in. You won't get it. If you want to understand it, you have to think it through. You have to have it translated for you by directors and actors right. and, and people who are trying to come to terms with it in modern in, in a modern right. way um, so that the audience can connect. And that's how I feel about Jewish tradition as well. Right. There's a combination of its intrinsic depth mm-hmm. and the beauty of the layers, the accretion of meaning and mediation mm-hmm. that have even added to that. Right. Uh, and the fact that you have to keep doing it. Yeah, keep doing it. It's and worth, it's worth, it's worth to keep doing. doing. That's the beauty. And, you know, I think that there's great, uh, this notion that anybody can teach you. My teacher, uh, Rabbi Larry Kushner, from long ago, was my rabbi for many years, used to tell this story about carrying a big book of Talmud into some little kosher cafe in the Lower East Side, and an old guy with a, you know, <laughs> with the full sort of orthodox regalia sat down and said, zug me a pusik, which uh-huh. is tell me, you know, t- teach me something. Uh, teach and he's me teaching this, this kid, kid you, you can teach me a chapter. Anybody can teach anybody. Everybody's got something to teach. Right. 
if you're willing to engage with this stuff. So I think they're connected that from way. From my students, most of all, have I learned. So yeah, exactly. There you go. So uh, from people who you don't expect. That's why tour study still is a growth industry. <laughs> it is a growth industry. I think it's been one of the most successful elements of non-orthodoxy, not because it doesn't apply to orthodoxy as well, but because it has been growing fastest in the non-orthodox world. Yeah. In the time of my growing up and becoming an adult, where Torah study was a recondite activity, mm -hmm. now there's not a shul in the country that I know of, and I visit lots of shuls that doesn't have Torah study, uh, study either on Shabbos or on Sunday. Right. Or during, and, or during the week. Or, or, during, yeah, yeah, or at the right. lawyer's office downtown. Right, or, right. you know, any That's number right. of places. That's right. I teach one of those at the lawyer's there office. There you go. It's and also, and, I, and in, the, in the world of women in particular, we have doubled the capacity of the Jewish people to study Torah right. and, to, and to understand it and to reshape the way we live it. So we have a generation of learned and learning women who've engaged with Torah study. And speaking of the layers and accretion of mediated Torah and Midrash, I think I saw somewhere, either written about you or by you, that you attribute the boom of the Red Tent to the distribution of the book amongst book clubs and the like. Is that... Yeah, and, but and, and that seems to be a. a that has nothing to do with Torah study in a way, though. No, I mean, well, yeah. I'm, I'm asking yeah. if yeah. it doesn't, because that communal, that the willingness to carve out time in your week yeah. to read together, to think together. Most of the book groups aren't Jewish. Most of the book groups, the reason it's a bestseller is because of women's book groups, for the most part. And if it was only Jewish women, it would not be a bestseller. <laughs> but Jewish women, thank God, talk to non-Jewish women, and, yeah. and and everybody talks to everybody. It's all word of mouth. I can't tell you the number of emails I've gotten from people who have nothing to do with Judaism. It, to them, it's a book that is about women's empowerment and, and respecting the power of women in their own bodies, in their own lives, and agency. Um, and the voice thing. And the voice, and the voice thing. Um, for Jewish women and Christian women, it gives voice to scripture, and that's very powerful. Yeah. yeah but there are a lot of people who, you know, they, um, and a lot of people don't know this story particularly, Dina's right. terrible story, uh, and, um, and it's a shock that it's mm. even in a Bible. Right. Right. So, but it's interesting, it's, it's got a much bigger reach than uh, I could have. It's, a, it's in Japanese, yeah. you know? It's pretty cool. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming to spend Well, this, this is the most interesting conversation I've had <laughs> as, uh, a, as a podcast, yeah. Thank you. None of the questions have ever been asked of me before. Well, I'll take that as a compliment. It's a huge compliment. And, uh, I've been doing this a long time. And it was really a pleasure to get to know oh, you. Thank you. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.